think that there are opportunities you know, for designers to be more a part of the conversation, to have a seat at the table. It's an important role that, that designers need to play, both in the response to the pandemic and also for what comes after. The design process has a wonderful way of fostering empathy and fostering exchange and learning. From NYC by Design, this is The Mic, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Millman. Tune in each month as I engage in conversations exploring projects, products, and inspirations driving New York City's innovative design community. This year, the mic is exploring design for sharing. We're uncovering new ways for creative people to share space, materials, resources, ideas, processes, and inspiration, all while being physically apart. Each month, we listen to your stories, and then I get to talk design with two inspiring guests. Want to be featured on the next episode of The Mic? Visit nycbydesign.com to tell us your design story. During today's show, I'll speak with two talented New York-based architects to examine how their design work uplifts and gives back to communities through equitable public projects. First, let's meet Michael Chen. He's a New York City-based architect and co-founder of Design Advocates, a nonprofit network of independent architecture and design firms that conducts research and provides pro bono design services to organizations, small businesses, and under-resourced communities. Design Advocates' work has concentrated on improving the safety, physical distancing capabilities, and mechanical systems of indoor spaces, as well as the safety and availability of design in outdoor spaces to ensure that all communities have equitable access to essential services. Before we dive in and speak with him, let's listen to his pitch about Design Advocates and its work to serve the public good. Design Advocates team has been working to convert important public health and policy guidance into understandable and implementable action for business owners and organizations. And it really grew out of a recognition that we had at the beginning of the pandemic that that designers and architects were were desperately needed to, to step in and fill that important gap between guidance and implementation. And that designers were also exceptionally and perhaps uniquely qualified to be exactly those the people who could connect those important dots. Um, we're an organization that was founded in March of 2020 um, as a group of five, and we've since grown to about 120 small firms and individuals who are collaborating on projects that range from outdoor dining installations from neighborhood restaurants to a modular furniture system um, for a major provider of homeless services in New York City to program and workspaces for arts and social services agencies, um, outdoor learning environments um, in New York and in California, public libraries, and reopening plans for four New York City public schools. Michael, what wonderful work you're doing. Thank you so much for doing this work for our community. Um, I'd like to start out by pointing out the sheer size of the network that you've built over such a short period of time. Can you talk a little bit about how you grew from a group of five to now 120 firms and individuals so quickly? Well, thank you for the kind words, Debbie, and thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, 
the beginning of Design Advocates was really a kind of friend-to-friend -friend sort of network. Um, and I, many of us who are at the beginning of this um, are also associated with different schools of architecture in, in the New York area. And so we were, we were actually on a, there's a, there's a drinks list um, that is for, that's for critics sort of at the end of the semester. Um, many of us get together for drinks. And so we sort of drew on that in our, in our own networks, our own professional networks, and just were reaching out at the beginning. And, at, at, you know, right in March, at, Towards, sort of towards the end of March, um, design advocates is really a way of helping ourselves, like it, and and our and our employees. We weren't sure what was going to be happening in the city. We weren't sure really what was going to be happening with our with our practices and our projects. Um, and so it started by just kind of being a way. It was a weekly conference call, um, and it was a way to share information about things like PPP and and you know the latest. That people were hearing from the Department of Buildings and and you know kind of w strategies that they were taking to retain their their employees and within a couple of weeks it became pretty clear that you know unsurprisingly that we were going to be fine you know as design as design professionals we were probably going to take a little bit of a hit um, economically but you know by and large our practices were going to be were going to be kind of okay and we really started to think about how to how if we were going to be taking public money in form of sort of government assistance, um, that we didn't want that money to go to subsidizing projects that should be paying projects. Um, we really wanted to think about another place or another avenue to, to direct those resources to kind of retain our employees and, and, and think about how to, how to give that money back um, to the city, which was really struggling mightily um, and continues to struggle um, you know, throughout throughout the pandemic. But it was, as I was saying in, in, in the intro, it felt as if, you know, in, in late March, early April, that there was just a gigantic hole, a kind of a, a, a big moment of silence where one was hoping that the various governmental agencies or professional organizations or, you know, that someone with some expertise would step into that space to help um, individual business owners or kind of um, you know, organizations that we were seeing that were also kind of going through the same process of what do we do, how do we adapt, what, what you know, what can we do, what's safe, what's not safe, how do we, how do we interpret all of these different signals that we're getting from various agencies, um, and because there wasn't, we thought, well, you know, we can do that. That's what we, that's really what we do all the time. You know, we kind of convert a lot of, a lot of sometimes competing or, or inconsistent information into, into into sort of actionable, doable things for for clients. Um, so that's really that's really the the story of how design advocates got going. I think you know to more specifically answer your question, it was really I think about giving people an opportunity to give back at, at this moment of national or kind of global crisis. And I think that designers, unsurprisingly, are hungry to be able to do that. And so it's really not been. Very easy. In fact, we have more volunteers than we have projects. Um, you know, we, we can't. We struggle to. We struggle to. We struggle to find projects to kind of resource properly um, because we have so many people who are interested in, in participating in design advocates. Can you talk a little bit about some of the projects as well as some of the results that you've had with local businesses and communities through design advocates? Sure. Um, well, one of the. One of the one of the origin projects of, of Design Advocates was actually thinking about public schools um, because we were 
I don't have any, I don't have children myself, but, but many of the people in design advocates do. And they were going through the same problems and kind of terrifying scenarios that all parents in New York City um, who have children in school were, were going through and the schools were closed. Um, and at a certain point, the schools, uh, you know, there, there was talk of, of kind of reopening them. And we were realizing that there were so many public school buildings in New York City that are really, you know, like many buildings in New York City that are just not set up to, to retrofit or adapt to, um, to the, the kinds of, of guidance that was being offered that would, you know, that, that, would, that would give anyone confidence about how to occupy the school. So, so a, a good example is we did a project for PS34, um, which is in North Brooklyn. Um, it's, what, it's, it's in fact the oldest public school building that is still in operation in, in, in Brooklyn. And it's a shotgun style building, meaning that there are no corridors. You, you access one classroom by going to another classroom. Um, and that is a, you know, that's a, that's a public school that serves hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students. And it was impossible to even begin to think about how to reoccupy that school. So, you know, the Design Advocates Project was not terribly glamorous. It was a circulation plan. Um, it's sort of like a, an in-depth spatial analysis, just thinking about, well, you know, we have this phasing system and we have these classrooms and we have the stairwells and what, what are a series of pathways that students and faculty can take um, that are kind of associated with their grouping that would allow them to access their classroom without passing through another classroom. And that was kind of coupled with some really simple signage, some strategies for color coding the spaces and, and corridors and bathrooms so that you knew, you know, if you were in one group that you, you use the red rooms, but not the green rooms. Um, and we got this incredible feedback from parents and from teachers. And that, that was one of those first moments of sort of proof positive feedback that, that we got that, that this is something that we could really be helpful with. How are you primarily finding your projects? You know, we haven't really done a ton of outreach. We've reached out to a few organizations, public schools, and uh, we also reached out to a number of social services agencies that we thought were doing important work. So one of them was uh, the Bowery Residence Committee, which is one of the larger providers of homeless services um, through the Department of Homeless Services. Sometimes it was it was it was that way, you know. Similarly, with housing works, um, we're doing we're doing some work um, on office and programs staff and, and program spaces for for housing works, and that was just sort of we knew that that was an organization that we really believed in and kind of was doing really important work, and we we reached out. Um, there have been others others. I mean, one of one of the other things that has happened um, in the last several months is that we've helped to stand up a program called the Design Corps, which is in partnership with NYC by Design and the Economic Development Corporation and the AIA. And that's a that's a program to partner individual restaurants with individual architects who can help them. For that program, we've just been trying to do a lot of outreach, you know, both to architects and also to to individual restaurant owners um, to, get, to let them know about the about the program. Have you had to do any fundraising? We haven't. Um, we're actually, you know, we're, we're sort of a fledgling organization. So we are very very fortunate. We have the we have um, some pro bono legal help from O'Melveny and my uh, O'Melveny, which is one of the larger kind of uh, law firms in New York City, which has been really wonderful. So they've helped to get us set up as a as a proper New York State uh, nonprofit, and um, 
we are in the process of pursuing fiscal sponsorship so that we can start accepting donations. So for now, what donations we've um, we've been able to, to to accept have been sort of through the nonprofit agencies and organizations that we're that we're working with. So people make a donation directly to those organizations, and that funds the work. But the work so far of design advocates has really been 100% volunteer um, from the from the participating offices and individuals. Have you seen any unexpected collaborations between designers in your network? Collaboration is such an important part of what we're doing. I mean, obviously, we're collaborating with these clients, but um, it was something that we set up at the beginning. And I think it's one of the things that has made Design Advocates actually really successful, um, which is that we, we made a decision that at the outset that all design advocates projects should be collaborations between offices. And so sometimes those are offices who know one another and sometimes they are not. Um, and we try to, as a, as a board, we, we try to make what we think are going to be good pairings, both in terms of sensibility and also availability and, and kind of expertise. Um, so I think many of them have been um, surprising. I think that one of the, some of the most exciting collaborations have actually been ones where we're using design advocates as a way of exploring more broadly collaborative and, and participatory forms of design with clients and with the communities that that they and we are serving and so we they they have a very small gallery space and they need to convert it from being a, an exhibition space to being a studio space because they host um, uh, artists who you know kind of use this, this space as a as a studio as, as well when, when it's not being used for exhibitions um, and we so we did a series of design proposals for them and then um, but we but we were realizing like we that we were working sort of for this incredible group of fellow creatives but we're not really but we weren't really working with them so we devised this um, what we called a participatory pinup where we we kind of pinned up all of the schemes um, that were being developed for the gallery in, in the gallery and then taped, out, taped them out on the, on the floor and invited the entire community of artists who are represented by Summertime to come and kind of make their mark on our design ideas. And so um, it was a, a, a four-day event, um, kind of in small groups, small socially distanced groups, um, where you know, small groups of, of artists kind of came they looked at the schemes. They added their own sketches and and ideas uh, to the, you know, to the design ideas that the architects had put together. And then we documented it all and kind of incorporated it into the next um, several presentations. And that it was such a such an amazing experience and so, and so eye opening in terms of kind of ways of working that maybe um, those of us who have our own offices might be. Um, you know that I think like when you have your own practice, you, you it, it's harder, you know, to to kind of experiment in in, in that kind of way or sort of uh, with with different forms of collaboration. But because we have design advocates, like we're, you know, we're we're also using it as a in a way a kind of platform to test these other more participatory modes of design. It's clear to me that the designer's role in reopening and rebuilding our city. Um, has has really been shown to be so critical in the next phase of, of this pandemic. Do you think that this experience that we've all been going through might position designers as more integral parts of the planning process 
across the board? I hope that that's true. Um, I think that that was always, you know, the public school example is a is is one in particular. Like I think that our our we we were aware when we started Design Advocates that there was an opportunity here to kind of make good on the advocacy part of our of our name, right? That it wasn't just about it wasn't just about making design for the sake of design, right? But that but that through our encounter and our our work with with communities that uh, there was an opportunity to build a real constituency, you know, and, and I think that, um, you know, we, we sort of identified a problem and tried to somewhat rigorously give it some kind of definition at, at the beginning, right? That there was that there were these, um, you know, there was a sort of uniquely spatial aspect to, to to COVID, right? Because it concerns our ability to be together and something that is so foundational to the to the interests of architects, and so. Um, you know, we had kind of defined that as a problem. We we knew that we had the expertise to to be beneficial, and now through this this organization, we've we built a fairly we built a fairly sizable constituency of, of people who who can sort of bear witness to the fact that design has had positive impact on their ability to do their own work, right? To, to kind of do the important work that they are doing in in communities. And so I think that that I think that the proof is in the pudding in, in many. In, in many respects, and I think that this is a truth that all designers already knew about design, um, but we lacked uh, a, a kind of a, you know, the maybe the the best packaging for it. So I do think that there are opportunities, um, you know, for designers to to be more a part of the conversation, to have a seat at the table. I think that it's an incredibly important um, thing. It's an important role that that designers need to play, um, both in the response to the pandemic and also for what comes after. So many of us are sort of looking at, at at the outdoor dining installations and 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 the diversification of what is happening in the street and what what the street is for and who the street is for. I, I've met very few people um, who are not excited by the by the prospect of kind of greatly diversifying um, the kind of public landscape of of the street, you know, through through instruments like out, outdoor dining. And and I think that it's you know in order for that to go well. It needs to be designed well, right? Like there needs to be thoughtfulness, and and it's a kind of extraordinary time, where every single thing that is being done in response to COVID is a prototype, like every single thing. And so you know to be able to engage in many, many, many different kinds of projects, take measure of their impact, you know, to identify what the challenges are for for individuals in our in our communities, it's given us an opportunity to collect an enormous amount of really useful information, um, and we're sharing it with everyone that we can possibly share it with. So I think that I think that there really is a kind of a, a promising role for designers to play. Again, Michael, thank you for doing this important and inspiring work. Now I want to introduce everyone to Andrea Steele. Andrea is the founding principal of Andrea Steele Architecture, a New York-based practice that believes the scale of architecture is not measured by its physical size, but by its positive impact on people, resources, and sense of place. The studio's design rigor and excellence has a heightened focus on institutional, cultural, and community-oriented projects. Here's a bit from Andrea on her firm's most recent project at 300 Ashland, better known as the Brooklyn Cultural District. During my 30 years in the profession, I've come to realize our primary role as architects. We create connections. 
connecting people to people, people to resources, and people to a sense of place. Many people go without resources, not always because they do not exist, but because they are not visible or accessible. Architecture is not just about providing the space for resources, but ensuring that through thoughtful integration and organization, we remove the boundaries that often prevent their equitable access and distribution. With the design of this new arts and cultural center in downtown Brooklyn, we sought to construct a common ground for four incredible institutions to share their resources with each other and the public at large. We extended the public realm as an elevated terrace to act as flexible venue for exhibitions, gatherings, and performances. Even though the interior spaces are not yet complete, we have already seen the plaza transformed into a public stage, as it was during one of the Black Lives Matter protests at the beginning of the pandemic. All of architecture is public, and as such, must serve all. Andrea, I was really fascinated by the concept of scale of architecture not being just measured by its physical size, but by its positive impact on people, resources, and a sense of place. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you see that manifesting. I, I think for us, and I really appreciate what Michael said about uh, architects as advocates, um, we're always looking to be advocates for every project, even if that is a client under a very typical structure, meaning we seek very hard to reframe the questions, you know, instead of, instead of a site being defined by the property, think about where the impact, what's the scale of the impact, instead of thinking about, you know, who the client is solely as the person that's hired us to think about what is the need. Um, that often allows us to be advocates for those that aren't necessarily at the table with us, defining what the scope of the project is. Um, it forces us to look outside the project brief itself um, to decide how we can utilize the resources at hand to increase access to those resources, potentially to create other resources. So, uh, it, you know, it's really interesting that, you know, for as architects, we are uh, always looking to advocate and to align. I think that all too often the design process is misunderstood as a means to an end. You know, that most people think of architects as a necessity to translate design ideas into the built form. I think as architects, we have to be able to risk uh, that maybe architecture isn't always the answer, that the design process is the true advocacy, the true resource. And at the end of that process, it, you know, building might not be the answer and that you have to be willing to identify what the real need is. And sometimes the real need is just connecting people to their own voices and connecting those voices to others that could bring the resources that are necessary. I, you know, it, it's a, if the design process is really used to its full potential, which is connecting people to people and people to resources, then I think more often the end result is much more than uh, the, the actual one-to-one -one built form. How does the idea of connection as a priority uh, figure into some of the actual architecture that you do? I can give an example of the uh, cultural 
the cultural district project to trees development and put forth a plan to build a mixed use residential development, residential retail. And then the public component was 50,000 square feet of cultural space. This cultural condo would house a series of, uh, of a group of institutions to provide these cultural resources, cultural amenities to the community at large. Um, but the reality is that that alone does not assume an impact, right? We could have just as easily housed the Brooklyn Academy of Music, Brooklyn Public Library, 651 Arts, and Mokata uh, within the second and third floors uh, with their names on the directory and that internal cultural mall would have potentially been um, a very diminished impact. Uh, resources are only as good as they're visible and accessible to the world. We know what a struggle it is for cultural entities and not-for-profits to survive. The design process can prove how shared resources can make us more resilient. Uh, and so the design process for the cultural district was interesting in that we made sure that all four entities always knew what the others were doing. We had shared meetings together, each heard what the other's aspirations were, what programs they were bringing to the site, what hopes they had, what and, and, and what struggles they had. And the wonderful thing was the design process has a way, a wonderful way of fostering empathy and fostering um, exchange and learning. And so Brooklyn Academy of Music heard about the gallery spaces that Mokata was creating. 651 Arts understood what the library wanted to do. And in the end, all of them came to the table thinking about how their programs could respond and support the others so that they were not just sharing a roof, but they were this cultural ecosystem. But going back to responding to like how we looked beyond the site, how we looked beyond the programmatic requirements to the larger need. If you look at the Flatbush, um, Lafayette and Ashland Corner, this is this triangular site, uh, heavily trafficked Flatbush Avenue. There are very few places to pause. Um, and you know, the thing is, this was, even though this was born of a public-private uh, partnership, you know, like I said, all of architecture is public. And even if you had a wholly private development, you have to think about how you can serve the public at large. You know, we all live in New York City. We all walk by, you know, uh, through this urban fabric. You know, even if I'm lucky enough to practice architecture and live in New York City another 50 years, I won't occupy 90% of the built city. Um, and yet it has a very strong impact on my day-to-day -day life and my experience. So for this project, we looked around and we said to ourselves, if, what is the ultimate goal of this project? And we knew we had to carve out a public space. And so we, what we did was we um, took the streetscape, we elevated it up into this stepped terrace such that this amphitheater could just be the place for pause, host lectures, exhibitions, um, you know, even outdoor theaters, it is already hosting um, uh, farmers markets, um, outdoor dance rehearsals. And, um, and that elevated terrace not only creates this place for people to collect because it's such a universal truth that people wanna be where other people are. And sometimes that's the greatest value that you can create, but uh, also very importantly, that elevated public space brings 
the public up to the second, third and fourth floors, bringing the public to these cultural entities. So, you know, when, when you really are thinking about advocacy, you know, at every step of the design process and thinking about who can benefit and how do you maximize that benefit? How does every effort have mutual benefit, you know, and multiple benefit? Because, you know, our city is not a collection of disparate objects, right? I mean, I know we look at the, the postcard and the skyline and we tend to forget that those iconic buildings, you know, are, are born out of the ground. They're growing out of, you know, our streetscapes, but that's where we live. That's where we experience. None of, none of us are really profoundly impacted by what the skyline is doing. So it's so important that anytime you add something, you make your mark, you know, within the public realm, you have to be saying to yourself, what impact are we having? Um, this pandemic has has shown how absolutely necessary it is to design in such a way as to leverage resources, to connect resources. And, you know, just as sustainability is about a preservation and conservation of natural resources, so too design should build social, economic, and cultural resiliency. You know, I, we might not have a checklist or metric or certification like LEED, for social resiliency, but it should be a primary preoccupation um, in design. It sounds like that social resilience was fueled by collaboration. It seems like you conducted a master class mm -hmm. in collaboration in, in being able to accomplish this. Is there, is yes. there one or two uh, tips you might give to our audience that are involved with numerous uh, constituents and are constantly having to juggle uh, the various needs of various parties? It is kind of creating the empathy through the design process because um, all too often people assume that alignment is getting everyone to think the same way. And that's, <laughs> that's just not possible. It doesn't matter if you have two constituents or 2,000. Um, the, the goal of alignment is not thinking the same way. The goal is finding shared values. And, and you know, it's so often, uh, you know, if you ask someone, what do you need? They can only default to either what they know or what they personally need, you know, individually need. And you really need to get them thinking about what is the collective goal. As, a, as an architect, you know, obviously we will always know the design process better than our clients, but the whole job of the design process is to educate our clients on what the design process can do for them. And so they go through this wonderful trajectory, this learning curve of learning about the design process and using that process to learn about them. And as we go through the process, we will never know them as well as they know themselves. And the design process is that wonderful learning curve for us to know everything we can about them culturally, individual needs. And the project, you know, the project doesn't exist until those two trajectories intersect. You know, that's when the project is born at the point at which what they know about the design process and how that can support them intersects with what we know about them and what we've learned from this process. Andrea, um, I'm so enthralled by 
by what you're saying and how important it is to be considering notions of collaboration and intervention. I'd like to bring Michael back to have a conversation between the three of us. Michael, welcome back. Um, the work that you're doing with design advocates is pro bono. It aids underserved communities. And Andrea, a lot of the work that you're doing is with paying clients who want to make their spaces equitable and engage the community. Um, let's talk a little bit about the intersections and common denominators. Do you approach work differently when you are creating for a paying client or when you are helping those in need? And this is a question for both of you because you are both working in both mm -hmm. sectors. Mm -hmm. So that's a great question. I, I, I think, you know, I think for us, the commitment to collaboration and partnership with clients and, and also the, the sense of responsibility that we have to them is really the same, whether they are, mm -hmm. whether they're pro bono clients or if they're, if they're paying clients, I think that, um, you know, the, the pro bono clients that we are working with, with design advocates are by and large organizations or entities or individuals who have not historically had access to um, the, the, the services of, of design professionals um, or, you know, maybe haven't had quality um, access to, to, to design professionals. And so there is, I think, a bit more of an, ed, of an education process for them in terms of what uh, working with a designer can be. And I think that in, in, to many degrees, it, it sort of speaks to these other dimensions of what the design is. It's not sort of the things, right? But it's the connections between the things, the space between the things, the sort of the, the kind of recombinatory possibilities that, that, that are greater than the sum of their parts. That understanding is something that is very, um, is much more prevalent in experienced clients. Um, and with inexperienced clients, sometimes you're, you're really having to educate them about what um, the possibilities actually are and also kind of what what work what a design process actually is and so I think that um, if there's if there's an important difference it's really it's really there and I think that once that is understood or let's say if if one has a commitment to um, kind of engaging in that kind of communication with clients and, and that and that sort of open collaboration with them, then the working relationships are, are really, they're, they're really quite comparable. Andrea, what do you think? Yeah, I would say I agree with Michael. Um, we don't make, there is no distinction whether the project comes to us low bono, pro bono, or as a typical paid service. And, and we do all three, and actually we're currently doing all three. Where I would say, um, it's the same approach, but manifests in different ways is again, acknowledgement of resources. Some clients come and do not have the resources to be as engaged as maybe ideally we would like in the process itself. So we have to be mindful of how we tailor the process to, you know, oftentimes the, their primary responsibility is running the institution or serving the, their constituents. And so they cannot be sitting there with a 10 person team attending to the development of the project itself. The other thing to be mindful of is even if someone comes to us with a healthy fee, with a, with a healthy budget, we're mindful that 
just because you have the resources does not mean you need to spend the resources for this project. And so there have been times like I, you know, the quote that comes to mind is, you know, if, if uh, your only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Um, and, and to the point I was making before, which is the architectural design process is not a means to an end. It's not the assumed, you know, building as the solution. There have been times we have not only talked ourselves out of uh, the size of the project by proving that we could do it more efficiently, by proving that they did not need to build as much as they thought they had to. We've reduced projects. We've actually lost projects because we've convinced them that through the utilization of existing conditions, they actually had the resources. They just weren't optimizing or utilizing them well. You have to be willing to do that because I think as an architect, your job is to preserve and create resources, not to use resources. And so, you know, um, you know, I think also sometimes uh, what is asked of us or how we deliver has to respond. You know, we had a the New York Restoration Project, which is the wonderful group uh, founded by Bette Mittler to oversee run uh, the community gardens throughout New York City. They had come to us to ask if we would design uh, for a low bono, a casita, a small structure by which that could house, um, you know, community dinners. It could be the place for, you know, people playing dominoes, classes, anything. You know, it was just a structure that could support any of the community activities. And, you know, my question to them was, well, what do you do for the next garden? And they said, well, we'll go to another architect and we'll ask for pro bono or low bono services. But we looked at what their resources were and while their resources might not have been in funding for this, they had a wealth of resources, which you know are actually, I think all of us share that our greatest collective resources are human capital. And so they have these incredible volunteers and community groups to uh, clean the gardens, plant the gardens. And so we said, what, how about we define a kit of parts and we create a manual, you know, not unlike Ikea. And you can take this and you can go to every neighborhood and work with the community to define how this kit of parts, how this modular system um, can create, uh, you know, for the community such that the community sees their hand in the creation and the design process. And more importantly, comes together as somewhat of a barn raising and build it. And so we did that together with them. And I'm happy to say that since then, they have gone in and uh, implemented that in three other gardens. So sometimes uh, the design process isn't really, again, the what, it's the tool, creating this tool for them to use as a resource and effectively eliminating the need to come back to us as architects, you know, sometimes our greatest resource is empowering them not to, not to need us. <laughs> How have your perspectives on the role of public space shifted since the pandemic in, in, and with real specificity to the notion of Andrea, what you were talking about in terms of shared values? Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, I, I like to believe that Social distancing is not a forever <laughs> condition. Um, and I would like to believe that uh, not only do we all still believe in shared physical space, but we desire it more than we ever have before and hopefully we'll no longer take it for granted. 
I think that this moment has taught us what is possible, but what is possible isn't necessarily what we want. Um, and I think that I know myself, will, I will be more intentional with what types of spaces I seek out. Um, and I, I think it, we will make our time in shared space more meaningful. I think, I hope this moment puts forth policies and real strategies for providing public space. You know, we all know that before the pandemic, things were, <laughs> for lack of a better word, you know, out of control. You know, sub, the, the overcrowding in subways, the traffic, the congestion, you know, while it might be uh, disheartening to walk through the city now and not see it at its full capacity, um, I would hope that we can uh, we can find ways of of seeing public space and the value you know the value of wellness. I don't know why it took a pandemic for us all to see how important uh, physical and emotional wellness was and the the power of public space, green space, light and air equitable access to all of those things, which uh, should go without saying, you know, it, it took a pandemic for us to realize that not everyone had access to these spaces and it isn't as obvious as it should be. So, and I know that it, you know, we as architects can do a great deal and, and Michael's advocacy group and hopefully our approach with every project that we're doing can build, you know, we carved out the public space that was not part of the project, you know, but um, how can we be much more proactive about providing those types of spaces across the board? And the worst thing we could do is default to business as usual when we think we're somehow out of the clear. Michael, final word with you. How have your perspectives on the role of public space shifted since the pandemic? Well, I think the pandemic has really laid bare the essential role that public space has in, you know, a whole host of different aspects of urban of urban life. And that and and to Andrea's point, it's also kind of laid bare the the sort of tremendous inequity of access and mm -hmm. safety and, um, and you know, kind of just the creation of a public space that is in many communities, right? So, and, and, and I guess it, you know, the, there's an, there's a, there is an important distinction to be made between, between, you know, privately owned public space and public public space um, mm -hmm. here as well. I think that both, both types of play, both types of public space um, play a role but it, but it is the, the public civic space that is owned by communities um, and, and kind of models for, you know, like community land trusts, you know, like there are, there are, many, mm -hmm. there are many sort of like non-public agency or non-city oriented mechanisms that are available for communities to assert more control over their public space. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we've been doing in Design Advocates is sort of just a bit of research, you know, with um, our partners at Thornton Tomasetti and, and others, um, just to look at, just to look at, you know, the streets in, in, in underserved communities and trying to make, trying to think about how they can be utilized as, you know, as sort of extensions of open space, um, you know, in, in partnership with, with local communities, because I think that the, there, are, there, are, there are tremendous resources that are 
available uh, spatially in the, in the in the public realm. They just need they need some innovative thinking and they need kind of willing partnerships, um, you know, on, on the on the part of on the part of sort of the public agencies that that control them. And I and I think that one of the things that has been really exciting about the pandemic is that people are willing to try. And I think that 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 spirit of you know everything is a prototype. Um, you know, we'll we'll try anything if it, if we think that it will benefit. Um, you know, public health or the public good. I think that's a, that's a kind of spirit that I hope will really outlive um, the pandemic. I think that that would be an extraordinary legacy for the city. Absolutely. I think that we've seen that this is more important than ever. Um, mm -hmm. I'd like to thank you both so much for joining us today to discuss design and advocacy, um, really challenging us to think about our values and, and doing so much for our great city. We hope this conversation introduced a new set of perspectives on how designers can serve as essential, necessary advocates to both their communities and to each other. Now, more than ever, it's critical that we look to solve the challenges we're facing both in our culture and in our neighborhoods. A huge, huge thank you to our guests, Michael Chen, Andrea Steele, for engaging in a fascinating discussion with us today. Want to talk design with me on the next episode of The Mic? We can't wait to hear your design story. Share it in the form of a voice message at nycbydesign.com. Join me next month to talk always learning. You can follow at nycbydesign on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to our newsletter to be the first to find out about next month's featured guests and the latest in New York design. It's time to share this month's featured voice messages. Join us at the end of each episode to hear additional design stories from talented members of New York's creative community who have shared their inspiration with us. Today, we're hearing from Kimberly Ellen Hall, Stefan Klambeneva, and Lan Park. Kimberly Ellen Hall is an illustrator, designer, and co-founder of the print and pattern studio, Natena. Natena creates a variety of handmade decorative pieces and focuses on the histories of objects in the home and how the stories embedded in them can change over time. Let's hear about one of Natena's most recent pieces, the spiritual wonder clock. Our work often stems from artist residencies and we try to follow the thread of our work over the demand of the marketplace. This year we're inspired by early American decorative arts. One of our pieces this year is the Spiritual Wonder Clock, which is a Pennsylvania German house blessing, often from the 18th century, that included 12 religious admonitions or meditations for the members of the household to consider each hour of the day. Our Wonder Clock is updated for a modern audience. When you note the hour of the day, allow the phrase for the hour to roll around in your head. Jot it down or say it out loud, but let the open-ended meaning of the phrase sink into your thoughts and actions for the hour. For 1 p.m., it's one slice short of a loaf. 2 p.m. is two sides of the coin. 3 p.m. is three wishes. Then four corners of the earth, five-finger discount, Six of one, half dozen of the other, seven-year itch, 800-pound gorilla, nine lives, 10 to one, turn it up to 11, and for noon or midnight, it's the daily dozen.
Stefan Klambeneva is a principal and founder of Ideators and member of the Board of Directors of the Industrial Designers Society of America. In his voice message, Stefan shares his thoughts on how the global pandemic can reshape the conversation around what designers should be doing for sustainability and climate change. Let's hear Stefan on the power of design to generate change. In these extraordinary times of a health, economic, social, and environmental pandemic, I wanted to remind people and designers in particular what is really important, specifically what designers need to do for sustainability and climate change. Many articles argue how interconnected these crises are, or that even climate change is just a slow-moving pandemic. Let's make change happen through innovation, human-centered design, and problem-solving with holistic systems thinking. How? Don't just clap every day at seven for our doctors, emulate them. They subscribe to the ethical canon of first do no harm, stemming from the Hippocratic Oath. How about us? Principles like these drive sustainability and circularity by design. We can't afford to take one step forward and 20 steps back. So just adopt the Hippocratic Oath and make beautiful things, but do no harm. Land Park is a longtime Brooklyn resident, fashion industry veteran, and founder of Hudson and Kings, a New York-based lifestyle design firm that celebrates Brooklyn by transforming the borough's style into home decor and beyond. The designs are reflective of qualities associated with New Yorkers, tough, fearless, and original. Let's hear Lon discuss her design process for Hudson and Kings. I have created a very unique product and it's embossed pillows or cushions and finally patented after three years of work and waiting. It is a visual oxymoron, I call it, since it has a very soft textural design and technique and it's visually very pronounced yet soft on hand feel and machine washable. As for any new products, I went through a lot of trials and errors and modifications on embossing, and I have met a lot of creative people at Chelsea Market pop-up store in the past about two, three years, a group of designers from Nike, a product VP at L'Oreal, and branding companies. Obviously, we have same interests and notice when we see it. Thank you so much for joining us today on NYC by Designs of the Mic. Let's talk design again next month. <laughs>